Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day. Stay at Whole Foods Market. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call. Pulling you deep into shadow. Twisting your senses. Keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. To start off this week, I'd like to let you know that our good friend and contributing narrator, Dennis Robinson, has just launched the Kickstarter for the second issue of his fantastic graphic novel, Lycan, Solomon's Odyssey. It follows the ongoing story of the original werewolf across the centuries. I won't say too much else but it's a great story brought to vivid life with incredible illustrations. If you haven't already checked out Episode 1, I highly encourage you to do so. Hiveheadstudios.com is where you can find Issue 1, a link to the Kickstarter for Issue 2, and get updates on Dennis's journey of bringing the world of Lycan to life. I'm excited to see how this issue pans out, Dennis. Speaking of bringing tales to life, we'd like to do just that with your unearthly tales. This is your weekly reminder to put pen to paper, or fingers to keyboard, and craft a creepy morsel to send our way. We're now open to all horror submissions, so head over to talestoterrify.com submissions to submit your masterpiece or for a bit more detail on what it takes to join the show. And don't be afraid to spread the word, either. 
family, friends, enemies, frenemies. You don't have to like them for us to want to read their best, most terrifying work. Send them our way, and I promise they'll get what's coming to them. Special thanks this week goes out to longtime PayPal supporter turned Patreon member Asger Sporing. Seriously, it's listeners like you, Asger, that make this all worthwhile. I can't quite put into words how grateful we are to know we can still entertain, inspire, and disturb you all these years later. Thanks for joining us behind the veil. If you'd like to join Asger and the other children of the night on our Patreon and get some sweet perks while you're at it, visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify. We have one story for you this evening, which comes from A.J. Lewis. A.J. Lewis is an author from Winchester in the south of England. He mostly writes speculative fiction and horror, but has been known to dabble in romance from time to time. Children of the Night, join me for A.J. Lewis's The Samovar, first published in Midnight Street Press, July 2021. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day. Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Dolovea. The journey will last seven days, Mr. Gorky, Moscow to Vladivostok. 
Across a small coffee-stained table in the canteen, the man reached inside his coat and pulled out a brown envelope, then placed it down in front of Alexei Gorky. Once there, deliver the package and you will receive another envelope like this one. Go on, take a look inside. Alexei picked up the envelope and shook its contents loose. His eyes widened as he leafed through the wad of paper, a one-way train ticket and a stack of rubles, more money than he'd ever seen in his life. His pulse hurried. He might have broken a sweat, even with the insidious cold from the streets still worming inside his bones. This is only half of my pay? The man gave him a frank nod. Mr. Markov firmly believes that the best way to ensure a safe delivery is to see that the courier is properly compensated for their time and energy. He leant across the table and looked at Alexei with a judicious eye. You do think this is an adequate amount, don't you, Mr. Gorky? Struck by the small fortune in his hands, Alexei stammered out, No, I, I mean, yes, yes, this is... The man sat back in his chair, picked up his cup, and sipped the tea within. Indeed, an adequate amount. The whole meeting came as an overwhelming surprise to Alexei. He was a vagrant. Nobody spoke to him. People actively avoided him in the street. Half an hour earlier, this man, well-dressed and well-spoken with a strong Muscovian accent, approached him as he picked through bins outside the Stolovea and Zamoskvoreche. He expected to be told to move on, not to be invited into the canteen for a hot drink and an offer of paid work. Now, Mr. Gorky, I need to know you're the right man for the job. If you aren't, well, I could just take that envelope back and be on my way. No, Alexei blurted, afraid the man would snatch away the money and leave, that he'd somehow blown his chance to leave Moscow and the past behind him. He regained his decorum and said, You can count on me, sir. Excellent. I knew I could. Tomorrow morning, then, come to this address at 6am sharp. The man handed him a business card made of heavy stock. An address was inked by hand under the name Markov. Your train departs at 9.15. Then why must I arrive at six? The man rose from his seat and buttoned his coat, bracing for the weather outside. Why, we have to make you look respectable, of course. You shall be travelling on the finest rail service anywhere in the world. He screwed his face as he looked Alexei up and down, disdainful of the ragged clothes and unkempt hair. Alexei could see the disgust as the man caught a whiff of his stench. You can't ride on this train looking and smelling like you've crawled out of the gutter. We will take care of that. Six, tomorrow morning. The man opened the door. Flecks of snow and ice blew in with the wind. The first of the advancing winter had fallen as they drank their tea and talked business. Wait, Alexei stood abruptly. How will I know who to give it to when I reach Vladivostok? A Mr. Markov? 
The man pulled up his collar close around his neck in preparation for the street and smiled at Alexei. You don't need to worry yourself about that. Yavoslavsky Rail Terminal At the address he had been given, Alexei washed in the hot steam of a banya and was dressed in pristine clothes. Any trace of his meagre existence had been scoured from his body. He'd looked like a new man, even if he didn't fully feel like one. A car delivered him to Yaroslavsky, where he was handed a large box by the driver. Hard persimmon wood, sturdy brass hinges and clasps that locked it shut, a brass carrying handle, its contents a mystery. The platform he needed was tucked away from the others, across footbridges that spanned tracks, through a tunnel under the ground, to a section of rail that sat solitary, hidden from the world by tall windowless walls that reached upwards towards the sky like great concrete cliff faces. A man waited on the platform beside the train, his uniform a navy jacket and trousers accented with gold trim, a peaked cap with matching navy band and an insignia depicting a zaptitsa, a firebird. A thin pencil line of a black moustache rested upon a sneering upper lip. Pinned to his breast was a badge which simply read, Conductor. Good morning, sir, he greeted, more cheerful than one should be when snow was given the opportunity to settle upon one's hat and shoulders. If I may first inspect your ticket, you are most welcome to come aboard. The conductor held out a white-gloved hand in anticipation. Alexei handed his ticket to the conductor. Dark eyes under bushy black eyebrows ran back and forth over the ticket, then looked Alexei up and down, fixing at last on the box he carried as his only luggage. The conductor seemed pleased. Ah, I see you are a special guest of Mr. Markov. Alexei wasn't sure about how special he was, but yes, he was here at the instruction of Mr. Markov. Mr. Gorky, isn't it? I've been expecting you. Guests of Mr. Markov are very dear to us and warmly welcomed on board. I hope that you find your journey an enlightening one. Enlightening? Certainly. You are about to travel one-fifth of the way around the globe, 5,772 miles to be exact. Such a journey can give one pause for thought, time for reflection. Reflection. The thought unsettled Alexei. He'd spent his whole adult life trying to hide from retrospect, for it was looking back which made the bitterness of guilt rise up in his gullet. If one is so inclined, Mr. Gorky, and please, if there is anything you need during your journey, do not hesitate to ask, the conductor said, his sneer a seemingly permanent fixture of his face. Alexei nodded. I will. Thank you. With the wooden case in hand, he stepped up out of the snow and boarded the train to Vladivostok. Day one. Moscow receded along the tracks as the train left Yaroslavsky rail terminal for the countryside, cold and dusted and frost and snow. From the first flakes that had drifted down as Alexei sat in the Stolovaya, winter had descended harshly and fully-fledged. 
The small houses and homesteads that bridged the gap between urban and rural were busy with energy as their inhabitants prepared for the worst. He looked out the window of his cabin until those few buildings that were left passed by in a blur. He studied his reflection superimposed on the glass, faint like a ghost, something made of unreality. Indeed, it seemed unreal, barely a reflection he could recognise as his own, and he smiled back at his own handsomeness, hair neatly preened and parted, face clean-shaven of the wisps that desperately tried to form a beard. He opened his mouth and inspected the spectre of his teeth, running his tongue over the smooth enamel, feeling the freshness of mint on his breath. The suit he had been given to wear was crisp and clean, brand new. It managed to feel both luxuriant and uncomfortable all at once. The material, fine and soft, didn't feel natural against his skin. Likewise, the cabin he had been given, number eight, was beautiful, but at odds with the years he had spent living derelict. The furnishings alone were probably worth more than he'd ever know. An armchair upholstered with floral patterns in a crassivi red, blushing like St. Basil's Cathedral in a summer sunset. The walls covered with intricately carved wood panelling. Red velvet curtains parted in front of the window through which he stared, a fully stocked cabinet of drinks for his enjoyment. After a few hours the train arrived in and left the city of Vladimir, a hundred and some miles east of Moscow, and with its departure the dining car opened for lunch. Alexei sat at a table laid with a cloth, silverware, crystal glasses and bone china, identical to the nine other tables that all seated hungry diners. A paranoia crept upon him. Could they spot an imposter? A charlatan undeserving of finery? He certainly didn't hold himself like the other passengers who sat straight and proud, used to the clothes on their backs. He tried not to meet their eyes and instead concentrated on the puddle of borscht in his bowl. Even the way he held the silver soup spoon set him apart from the rest of the passengers. He could feel them and their accusing, weary eyes, instilling in him guilt for a crime he was unable to be sure he had ever committed. The afternoon was spent snoozing in his cabin, belly full, happy for a real bed to rest upon, further contented that the evening would provide another meal. Two in one day was a rarity. Dinner was of a similar high standard to lunch. He tried hard to recall the last time he had been given the opportunity to eat so well. Back home, he supposed, prior to destitution. After the plates had been cleared, the dining car took on a less formal atmosphere, with bottles of vodka and tobacco smoke lending the air of a bar to the carriage, as the passengers conversed, drank, and grew raucous. Alexei joined in the drinking, but kept to himself, as he had always done. One man fell into another's lap to much laughter and applause, shaken from his feet by a combination of the motion of the train and the near-empty bottle in his hand. The more the night went on, the more the singing and dancing bothered Alexei, as a sense of family and camaraderie grew between the passengers. Family. Something he hadn't thought about for a long time. Some part of him was being unearthed, a part that he had spent the better part of his life trying to keep buried. The further from Moscow the train travelled, the more his mind was drawn back there, 
and the more vodka he swallowed to subdue the memories. Tiring of joviality, Alexei spurned the festivities for the solitude of his cabin, his head soused in too much vodka, and his heart heavy with the past, as it crawled from the grave where he'd laid it to rest. He drifted on the edge of sleep for some while, unable to fully let himself go, kept awake by the surfacing memories of his dear babushka and sweet, beloved Olenka. Day 2 Pure white greeted Alexei as he parted the curtains of his window, both brilliant and confusing. He wondered for a moment if the train had been consumed by a gigantic snowfall, or if it had been swallowed up by an avalanche in the night. A sudden side-to-side lurch of the cabin confirmed that the train moved onward, breaking through thick fog like a ship smashing through ice. He washed and dressed, taking fresh clothes from a closet that had been stocked solely for his journey, then made his way to the dining car for breakfast. The offerings were good. Delicately smoked fish and perfectly round, browned serniki with fresh fruit and cream, not at all like the misshapen ones Babushka used to make. There she came to him again, but only of a name, an acknowledgement of her existence. Alexei shook his head to dispel himself of the memories, some strong lapsam souchon to drink off the vodka from the previous night might also serve to sober him from the past. As he came to the end of his second cup, the mist outside looked to be clearing, and the mountains came into sharper focus, their slopes powdered by snow, branches and boughs on trees laden and drooping under the winter's weight. So long he'd been in Moscow that he'd forgotten the pristine purity of the wilderness. Hills and streams and woodland flickered past the window, until it showed him a few buildings nestled in a valley, a place he'd forgotten. That was it, wasn't it? Uncanny, the house he used to live in. A rural village west of Moscow, even as he travelled east. A bitter taste came to his mouth. How could those trees be the same that had enclosed his village? The train rattled by one that stood out, looked just like the tall and spindly birch he used to climb as a boy. Olenka hadn't been born then, and mother and father were still around. Nonsense. Trees all looked the same, especially as they whistled by at forty miles per hour. He told himself that all places looked like this in the wilds, every village and homestead indistinguishable from the last. Alexei finished his tea and returned to his cabin. For hours he sat in a sump of recollection deeper than he'd been in for years, thinking about Babushka and the village he'd called home. It gnawed at him and made him restless, claustrophobic. Some air, then, could be what he needed. He collected a scarf, gloves and hat from the closet and made his way to the rear carriage of the train, where a small viewing platform looked back along the tracks. His breath froze in the frigid air as he stepped through the door and leant against the railing. The train entered another patch of mist. The track that reached into the past shortened as the mist grew thicker, shrinking down until it had evaporated completely and the train travelled on a blanket of vapour. He held his arm outstretched, and there his fingers vanished before his eyes, erased by the substance of the fog that hung in front of his nose. 
The air from his lungs no longer registered as a puff of heat hitting cold, now one with the breath of the mountains. The thickness of the mist carried a sound all of its own, soupy and malignant, like a deep tinnitus, like crickets drowning, truest white noise. It started no louder than a whisper, noticeable at first only by chance. Then awareness opened up and a blanket of fog found its throat. A voice lurked amidst the folds of the veil, as much as a voice could be called as such, when words were not discernible, only sounds. He lifted one of the air coverings of his Ushanka and turned to listen to the track that raced away from the train. A definite sound, an auditory illusion, the motion of the train, metronomic, reverberating off the cliffs and peaks that lurked in the fog. It seemed to follow, keeping pace with the train, gliding along like a bird on the wing. No, that wasn't right. Its pace was increasing. It stalked Alexei. Laughter first, then sorrow. No, shrieking. A cruel cry that could shatter ice. Alexei reached back and grabbed for the door handle, at once needing to put a barrier between himself and the painful, piercing agony that came from the mist. He jiggled the handle. It didn't budge, frozen tight. He turned to face the door, pulled and pushed, heaved himself into it, but it was no good. The whisper of the fog grew into the bellow of mountains, wailing, screaming all around for him to do something. It asked of him, but he refused what it wanted. He couldn't look back. He didn't want to know the face of such a thing that could freeze blood with a sound so shrill. Banging on the window, his own cries for assistance failed to drown out the wilderness's turmoil. A lump, gross and nauseating, rose in his throat as an icy heat touched his shoulder, burning through the layers of fabric that should have kept him warm. It chilled him into silence, to the marrow and the screaming rang loud in his ears, an echo from the past that he had hoped upon hope to never hear again as long as he lived. And he felt sorry, so very eternally sorry. The door wrenched open and Alexei tumbled through, falling to his hands and knees. He turned in preparation to defend himself against the deafening presence that had come from the fog, but nothing followed, no spectre nor sound. The conductor, Alexei's saviour, stood beside the door with a hand on the handle and that sneer on his lip. Mr. Gorky, is everything all right? Alexei got up and tentatively poked his head out the door into a day of blue skies and mild temperature. Rolling away from the train, the mountains shrank smaller and smaller until they were swallowed by the horizon. I heard a commotion. It seems you had locked yourself out. Alexei felt cold all over. The conductor repeated, Is everything all right? I, I heard sounds out there, Alexei said, shaken. The harrowing screams nested in his mind. Those would be the mountains, Mr. Gorky, the conductor said, blithe. What do you mean, the mountains? The Ural Mountains are hundreds of millions of years old, or so I am told. They have been here far longer than you or I, and they will remain long after you have gone. They know more than you will ever know. 
They remember things that have been forgotten to all but the most stubborn-minded of men. Secrets kept behind a stone facade. But if one were to listen closely, such as yourself, then they will share their secrets. Don't be absurd, Alexei spat, incensed by the notion that his experience was anything other than ordinary. Mountains don't make sounds. No? You said yourself that you had heard them. I don't know what I heard. That was a lie. He had heard that same screaming before. Admitting so much opened his heart to fear and breathed life into the guilt from which he hid. The conductor's sneer softened to a smile, though one with a curl on his lip. I mean it only in jest, Mr. Gorky. No need to take offence. Of course mountains cannot speak. That is the stuff of folk legends and myth. The cold clapped its hands around Alexei's torso. I see you are shivering, Mr. Gorky. Perhaps it would be best for you to retire to your cabin, try to warm yourself, bring some heat back to your soul. Alexei saw sense in that. The chill had seeped in through his clothes and he trembled. He spent the rest of the day inside his cabin, leaving only for hot water to make tea that failed to warm him. No matter how high he turned up the heater, the cold still bit into his bones. And that screaming remained echoing in his ears. Like waking from a stubborn dream that persisted for the whole day, unshakable and insistent. He searched for words in the sounds, something to match meaning to emotion, and pondered the trepidation, the self-condemnation that it had provoked. Rationality told him it was only the combined sounds of wind and wheels as the train continued on in earnest to Vladivostok. The next morning, Alexei's Serniki had lost their perfect roundness, and the browning on them was uneven, slightly burnt in places. At a table across the aisle, a woman sat with her breakfast too. Alexei arched his neck to inspect her plate. Serniki and fruit preserves, but hers were rounded and faultless. The woman stopped eating. Is something the matter? she said, brusque. Alexei became immediately bashful of his intrusion. Oh, I'm sorry, I was just comparing our breakfasts. You appear to have better Serniki than I. She looked across to his plate. Really? What's wrong with yours? What was wrong with them? An irregular shape, blackened spots. He took a bite, a slightly doughy texture, like they'd been undercooked, though the bitterness from the burning suggested they'd been overdone. Funny, though, he seemed to prefer them like this. These were Sereniki he was familiar with, from a time behind him along the tracks, from the place his mind kept trying to find its way back to. I suppose there's nothing wrong with them. They're, well, they're what I'm used to. Or rather, what I used to be used to. I remember them, you know, from when I was a boy. A note of nostalgia tinted his voice, and with it came a sullen grief. They're exactly like Babushka used to make. As he looked at the pancake on his fork, he could see old Babushka sitting at the small hearth in their house in the village, 
moulding the dough into unround rounds with her wrinkled, bony hands while an iron skillet heated on the embers of the fire. Then I would say the chef has done an excellent job, wouldn't you agree? It's a rare thing to taste one's childhood again, the woman said. A rare thing indeed. Alexei would have preferred it to stay a rarity. He looked up at her from his serniki. Blonde hair touched with red, a broad jaw, blue-gray eyes and pale skin, a beauty, flawless like a painted doll. Did your babushka make anything else other than slightly burnt serniki? She made a home for Olenka and I. Remembering dispirited him. I, I don't like to, to think about those times. My babushka the woman said, ignoring Alexei's distress. Used to make vatrushka. She used to mix these horrible little dried raisins in with a tvorog filling. Fondness in her eyes, glassy and yearning as she thought back to her childhood. Alexei's skin trembled as her memory prompted his own, of babushka making the same vatrushka. Yes, that was it. He and Olenka would pick out all the raisins before eating the pastry and cheese, and later they'd take the dried fruits outside for birds to feast on. Babushka would always keep them in the recipe, though, saying they were good for growing children. His heart jumped at the vivid thought of Babushka at work in the kitchen, Olenka playing on the floor nearby. All these memories made him uneasy, rattled, a throbbing, hot, enlivened in his temples, a pain seared across the top of his head. Well, it's been nice talking to you, Alexei said, rising from his chair, dabbing the corners of his mouth on a napkin. But I must be getting back to my cabin. So soon? You haven't even finished your serniki. Apologies, I'm feeling unwell. Enjoy the rest of your breakfast. The fork tumbled from the table as he hurried to leave the dining car. Walking back to his cabin, he could feel the gnarled wooden boards of that old house beneath his feet and smell the smoke from the hearth as Babushka prepared meals. He could hear Olenka as she played with the doll whose name he couldn't recall. He didn't want to recall. Back in his cabin, he reached for a bottle from the cabinet and poured out a generous measure into a glass to subdue the headache and to calm the growing fear within him that the further he travelled from home, the closer he came to the past, he had all but forgotten. Alexei wore about him an air that spoke of a day spent in the company of a bottle. He stumbled from his cabin to the end of the carriage where the hot water still was positioned and turned the tap for a cupful. He returned to his cabin, and as he swayed at the door, trying his best not to spill his cup while he tussled with the latch, a voice beside him said, are you feeling any better? The woman wore a woolen dress, a deep forest green the colour of furs in midwinter. Alexei squinted through drunken maudlin eyes and recognised the blonde hair with the hint of red, the smooth skin. It looks like we're neighbours, she said with a smile, unlocking the cabin next to Alexei's. He wanted to say something to her, but couldn't think of anything with substance. His head swam from vodka. Blood rushed. One as beautiful as her was only ever admired from a distance. 
He didn't need to say anything. As if sensing his desire, she said, Would you like to come in for a drink? Such beauty. He couldn't refuse. As soon as the door closed, she kissed him, forward, unexpected, the passion on her lips bright and hot. She turned away, teasingly unzipped the back of her dress and let it fall to the floor around her ankles, her skin unblemished and unwrinkled, her beautiful tresses curled around her shoulders. She remained naked and facing the window, looking out into a night that rushed by. Then she raised her hands over her face as if hiding, ashamed, crying. Alexei reached to touch her shoulder, offer some comfort. She spun to face him. Smoke began to exude from the pores on the backs of her hands. The skin reddened. Alexei backstepped to the door, alarmed, dropping his cup of water. Her hands lunged after him, revealing the mess of her face, and dragged him in for a second kiss. Her lips' passion had ignited further than he ever thought possible. They were blistered and sore, her face burned red, charred black in places, weeping in others. A monstrosity of agony embraced him. Beautiful skin boiled free of flesh, crisping and breaking away. Eyeballs melted from their sockets like wax. He struggled against her, tried to pull free, but her hold was unrelenting. Her hair burned away. He could smell the stench of it through the charcoal of her tongue as it invaded his mouth, dry and suffocating like ash. A whole body incinerated without the touch of flame, raw, a vision of fiery hell. Again, he tried to pull away, fear garnering him strength enough to retreat. Her grip broke, and he fell back into sudden darkness. Day 4 Alexei woke in sweat from a nightmare. His head pounded with the slightest of movements. His stomach tried to crawl its way up his throat. Thank God for the personal bathroom. He'd never have made it to the communal one at the end of the carriage before bringing up last night's drinks. Along with regurgitation came the imagined smell of charred flesh and singed hair, the first recollection of a dream upon waking. A swig from the vodka bottle beside his bed helped to clear the taste and vaguely masked the smell of vomit. Scraps came to mind of the evening. That woman. Hers was the cabin next to his, wasn't it? And they'd kissed, didn't they? Then what in the hell happened next? Everything from there on collided and immolated with his dream. He couldn't recall returning to his own cabin. Perhaps she'd helped him. Oh, God, had he made a complete fool of himself. Hastily, he straightened his hair, rinsed his mouth with another swig of vodka, stepped into some shoes, and called in on the cabin next door. There was no answer. Hello? Are you awake? A second knock yielded an identical result. He listened intently against the door for a signal of movement inside. All he could hear was the incessant rumble of wheels carrying up from underneath the carriage. It could be she had awoken earlier than him and had gone for breakfast. Alexei turned to head for the dining car and bumped face to face with the waiting conductor, a shock that didn't play nice with his hangover. 
You look shaken, Mr. Gorky. The man looked pleased that he'd given Alexei a fright. Is everything all right? Alexei swallowed his pounding heart, suppressed his nerves. The woman who occupies this cabin. I had a few drinks last night, and we met up. Have you seen her this morning? The conductor looked at Alexei with faint disgust, like he could smell the vomit on his breath, then gave a wry smile. This cabin is unoccupied, Mr. Gorky. What? No, this is her cabin, next to mine. Last night, he'd been in there, he was sure of it. Could he have the wrong carriage? Perhaps the next one along? I can assure you, Mr. Gorky, that this cabin is vacant. Maybe drink got the better of you. The conductor took a keyring from his belt and searched through the keys, their clinking picking into Alexei's hangover like birds after worms. Here we are, number nine. The door unlocked and revealed to Alexei that the room was indeed unused. He stepped inside and the conductor followed. No luggage, the bedsheets unruffled, the carpet clean, and no occupant. Alexei felt abashed. I suppose I could be remembering things differently. Vodka can do that to you. The headache flared. If she's not in this one, do you know which cabin she might be in? I think I need to... He wasn't sure what he needed to say. Apologize, Mr. Gorky? Maybe. I will have to check the passenger manifest. What is the young lady's name? Alexei drew another blank. Or if the drink keeps her name from you, perhaps you could tell me what she looks like. She, blonde hair touched by red, a forest green dress, skin white like a doll. Then he saw her in flames. The oddest sensation of not quite deja vu came over him, though not because of the woman. Its source lay somewhere else, in some thing else. He thought he knew her, but the name was lost. It couldn't have been... A drumbeat thundered in his head with batons made of lead. He could hear the blood flow racing. He felt like he was about to pass out or vomit again, or both. Between the aching in his brain, the rise in heart rate, and the growing feeling of dread, Alexei had had enough. This had to end. Ever since setting foot on this train, he had found ways to remember. Well, no more. You know Mr. Markov, don't you? asked Alexei with a sweat of alcohol and disorientation on his brow. I do, Mr. Gorky. Then would you be able to send him a message when you arrive in Vladivostok? Please tell him that I'm sorry, but I cannot make it. I'm going to get off at the next station. I'll leave the package for you to deliver. I am sorry, Mr. Gorky, but I cannot do that. Why not? Alexei was surprised. What he asked didn't seem so unreasonable. Here, I'll pay you, he grabbed in his pocket for money, then shoved handfuls of it at the conductor. Half of what I've been given. The conductor backed off a pace. It is not payment I desire. I am a conductor, Mr. Gorky, not a courier. That is your job and yours alone. He checked a pocket watch attached to a gold chain. Besides, we have not long left Erkutsk. 
The next stop is some six hours away. Ulan Uda. Then I have no choice but to wait. The conductor slipped the watch back into his pocket. The sneer returned to his face. If you look through the windows on the left of the train, you'll see Lake Baikal. Alexei felt tired. He wanted to close his eyes until Ulan Ude. He wanted to hide from both the world outside the train and within. He didn't want to see what the conductor wanted to show him, and motioned for him to move aside so that he might return to his own cabin. The conductor stood firm. Do you believe in ghosts, Mr. Gorky? Asked that question a week ago, he'd have emphatically said no. Outside of fairy tales and bedtime stories, ghosts had no place in the real world. But the past few days had conjured up spirits of the long dead. So close to the bone were his experiences that he was now left questioning. He stared at the conductor, trying to determine if there was some playful meter to his question, some joke he was yet to be let in on. You are unsure. I can see uncertainty in you. He pointed over Alexei's shoulder to the window. Look to the fog that crawls over the surface of the lake, and you might see them. See who? The conductor shrugged. I myself have never seen them. Another myth, perhaps, like the voices you heard in the mountains. No matter how many times I have taken this route, they have never paid me any visits. Some people, though, are fortunate enough to see. Alexei turned, drawn to the window against better judgment. Some say they are the spirits of horsemen who drowned in the lake long ago when ordered to cross the fragile ice by their commander. They are said to ride straight towards you. Alexei had heard of white horses leaping in surf spray, galloping from the sea and rearing up onto beaches. No such roiling foamed lake by Carl. Today, the waves looked almost afraid to lap at the shoreline. The water's surface was calm, but the fog rolled over and over, forming waves in their own right, tumbling slowly, seemingly unburdened by the constraints dictated to them by gravity. Before you heard. Now, Mr. Gorky, what is it you see? He shouldn't listen to the conductor, yet now he was hypnotized. Do the horsemen ride to meet you, or is it someone more familiar, someone you have known? Yes, he could see something. There were figures out there on the lake, intangible as the fog itself, fleeting, playful in the mist that wrapped around them, grey and thick like toiling smoke. Two people held hands, a woman and child. Though the train moved, the figures remained in tandem, gliding through the fog or trapped within the glass of the window itself. They came towards him. As they neared, he could see their faces clearly. They were those same faces that he had forgotten. Alexei began to cry. How long had it been since he had last seen them? Ten? Twenty years? Long enough for him to lose all track of time, for them to be swept under the rug at the back of his mind, their faces erased from existence. But there they were. Babushka, old and creased. 
Olenka, pure and youthful. Are they as you remembered? Alexei swallowed hard. He stopped the flow of tears, strengthened his resolve. He whipped the curtains closed in a snap. The fog had had its fun with him. No, I don't want to remember, he said, voice raised. There's nothing to remember. It's just fog. He shoved his way past the conductor and into the hall. Are you entirely sure, Mr. Gorky? What else could it be? It's just fog, he reiterated, compounding his denial as he opened his own cabin door. Only children see shapes in clouds. Slamming it behind him, he slumped down in the armchair. His fingers fidgeted. Six hours. Ulan Uday wasn't Moscow, but it was better than being stuck on this godforsaken train. You know that it doesn't matter where you go, Mr. Gorky, the conductor said through the door. They are still with you. They always have been and always will be. Alexei listened to the conductor's footsteps fade along the corridor. He wanted an end to it. Now that he could see them again, brighter than a photograph, alive in his mind, it felt too late. Day 5 The train was quiet. Not entirely, of course. The constant of the wheels turning, the rail grinding, the ever-present background noise of progress. But the heart that beat wherever people congregated was gone. Alexei explored the empty carriages. He looked for someone. For anyone. All doors were locked save for the communal toilet and shower, and passage between the carriages. A heavy metal door barred the way to the engine. The conductor was nowhere to be found. Six hours had come and passed. So too had Alexei's desire to leave the train, realising that now he had begun to remember there was no putting the lid back on the box. He remained instead to see his task completed, to deliver the package. In the dining car a single place was set for a guest, the breakfast laid out on a plate. Serniki. They looked like they'd spilled from the pan and fallen into the fire. They were broken and blackened beyond edibility. Sad lumps of coal sat on bone-white china. And the smell of them. Acrid on acerbic. He felt like he was breathing in smoke, walking through the remnants of a house fire. He grabbed at his head and growled in frustration. No! He wanted nothing more to do with those times. What good did it do for all this to come back to him now? God, years and years had gone by and now they came to him. They were gone. They should stay gone. The walls of the dining car constricted, condensed him further into memories until he could take no more. He scuppered the plate of Sereniki to the floor, then burst into the next carriage, bound for his cabin, his breathing agitated, his movement frenetic. The red carpets of the carriage were gone, now bare, splintered floorboards. Windows no longer looked to barren countryside. Instead, walls of patterned paper hid under accumulated dust and grime, tinted yellow by years of neglect and a single flickering light bulb overhead. There was no wondering where he was. 
It was a place he'd been before, a place he thought the train hadn't possibly passed by in the mountain, a house in the village he used to live in. A door ahead of him had worn patchy white paint flaking from it. He remembered how each time the door was closed by more than a gentle breeze, flakes would fall to the floor like snow. As a boy, he'd sit at the door and brush the flakes into cracks between the floorboards. Where they went from there, he didn't know. He went through the door into a lived-in room. Olenka sat in the window with Anna, her bisque doll with blonde hair touched by red. Anna wore a tiny green dress knitted by Babushka, who pressed Sereniki dough at the hearth. Alexei, Olenka cried, dropping her doll and running to him, wrapping her arms around his knees. She was so small, even for her age, too small to reach the door handle. Baba, Alexei's home. Alexei didn't speak to Olenka. How could he? She was dead. Don't you want to stay with us? He refused himself any words. Refused the ghost. Don't you want to see what happened? He knew what had happened. Babushka over by the hearth, her head drooped, her arms limp, a ball of dough dropped to the floor. Baba is sick, Olenka said going to her grandmother and tugging at her sleeve. The old woman slid from the rickety wooden stool that she sat on as she cooked and caught the handle of the pan that warmed on the embers. Sereniki tumbled into the coals and coals onto the floor. One rolled and cozied up close to Olenka's doll. You could help us, couldn't you, Alexei? If he were there, he could have. The doll caught light, its green woolen dress igniting like tinder, alive with fire. Hair frizzled away in an instant. Its face bubbled and blistered as flames spread and cavorted across dry wooden floorboards. Olenka ran to the window and looked out onto the village below. Alexei didn't burn as the fire swept around him. All he felt was the cold of the forest outside. Something pulled him back to the door, through it, and it swung closed, flakes loosing and spiralling to the floor like sycamore seeds. He covered his ears when Olenka began to scream. Day 6 Alexei didn't need to be shown the past through windows anymore. No lens was needed to bring it into focus. He didn't need to be shown the hallway of that old decrepit building, nor to have smoke breathed into his nostrils, or Olenka's cries sounded into his ears. He sat in a dream within a nightmare, a fugue where he could remember all as clear as day, in spite of lifelong efforts to bury it. He knew where he was that day, when his house burnt down to the skeleton of its timbers. The morning was dark, early. He should have been inside with them. As everyone else's day began, his was coming to an end after a night drinking and smoking and chasing girls with his friends in the nearest town that had anything close to a real population. Babushka would have made Serniki. 
He'd eat some for his supper while Olenka ate hers for breakfast. Then he'd walk her to school before returning home and slipping into bed. The street where his house stood was usually deserted. Not so on that morning. People lined it. Neighbours flocked to watch the terrible spectacle. The whole Petrov clan from down the road were looking to the upper windows. The elderly couple from the ground floor were in their night clothes, holding on to each other, scared for their home, and scared for the people who remained inside. Alexei ran towards the building, stopped at the assembled crowd. Olenka? Babushka? Where are they? he asked Mr. Petrov, who said nothing, only pointed to the window. Looking up, Alexei saw Olenka. He could hear her shrill screams through the window. She banged on the glass with her tiny hands, begging for help, until smoke enshrouded her, blacking out the inside of the house. After a moment of serenity, flame leapt through the glass and reached up to the sky like a vicious dragon had opened its vengeful mouth. The Petrov mother gathered her children in close. The woman from downstairs cried into her husband's shoulder. A voice spoke out amongst hushed sobs. They were your family. Next to Alexei, a man he didn't recognize lit a cigarette, the flicker of the match casting an orange glow across his face, just as Alexei's home illuminated the road below. The match went out with a brisk whip of the man's hand. What do you mean, were? Alexei was defiant, hopeful of some miracle. They might still be alive in there. Will you go in and see? The man questioned. Alexei stumbled for a response. He couldn't go in after them. He was too afraid. He wanted to, but even from the street out in the cold, he could feel the brutish intensity of the fire's fury. Cowardly, self-preservation trumped love for family, and all he could do was let them succumb. Then know now that they are dead. The man took a long draw of his cigarette. Were you home with them? Who knows what might have happened? Things could have turned out quite differently. Guilt stabbed at Alexei's heart like the long cold steel of a stiletto blade. He should have been home. Babushka had always been begging him not to go out at night. And Olenka felt safer with her big brother around. It's... it's my fault. I should have been there for them. Who can say? The man, dispassionate, shrugged it off. Best not to think about it too much, young man. With that, the man turned his back on the burning building and walked away into the coming dawn, leaving Alexei and the other villagers to feel the ashes drifting down onto their faces, like the first snows of winter. Alexei sat motionless in the armchair in his cabin save for the occasional sway as the train bobbled along to Vladivostok. If he went back to Moscow, they'd follow him. Forward to Vladivostok, they'd follow. Further on than that, even, to Peking, a boat to Tokyo, the Americas. It didn't matter where. Always he'd be running from them, from what he didn't do, and the unbearable guilt he deserved to be consumed by. Inevitable, really, that the question of why his memories had resurfaced should come to the fore of his mind. This journey to the east, 
into his past. If he hadn't taken that money and boarded the train, it was... It was because of that damned box. Alexei turned his burgeoning anger to the reason for his being on the train. If he was to be tormented so virulently by the past, then he wanted to know what it was for, what thing Markov could want so dearly as to cause such pain. He yanked the box from its place on the luggage shelf and slammed it down onto the table. The latches wouldn't move without a key, so he improvised with the thick end of a whiskey bottle lifted from the drinks cabinet. A few sturdy whacks and one latch came off, then the other. He tore away the lid and tossed it asunder, reaching into the box and lifted out. A samovar? He looked quizzically at the object, confounded. All this? For a tea urn? It made no sense to him that such a high price had been paid to deliver an object so commonplace. Its design, though, was anything but common. The body was painted black, with a glorious red firebird taking flight. Its wings spread wide to form two handles made of bronze, beautiful but bereft of luster. A spout protruded from the urn, also bronze. Babushka had told him the folk legends of the great firebird. Rebirth, riches, the symbol of leaving behind the old and starting again anew. Folk tales and children's stories, that's all they were. No, there's no rebirth for me. Olenka and Babushka didn't rise from the ashes, and neither shall I. He laughed out of disbelief, out of being the butt of a joke he didn't quite understand, out of fear and desperation. Well, Mr. Markov, I hope your tea tastes good. I hope it's worth what I've been through to get it to you. And then he laughed some more, maniacal, as unhinged as the wooden case he'd broken into. He remained in his cabin, sat in the sickening luxury of his armchair, reliving over and over the horrible death of his family, cradling the urn in his arms, holding it close like the sister he'd lost. End of the line. He could have closed his eyes. Doing so only served to open them to the hell that had consumed Olenka and Babushka. If he closed his eyes, he could feel that raw heat, roasting and burning from above, so open they remained, and Alexei stared dead-eyed at the wood panelling in his cabin. Olenka and his babushka. He could have tried to save them. That man was right. They probably were dead. If the flames hadn't killed him, then the smoke was certain to have done so. But he could have at least tried, and died alongside them. Then he ran. The flames in the building hadn't even been quelled, and he ran away from the village, through forests and over hills, until he came to the city, to Moscow, where he lived in shame and buried the memory of what had happened. It hurt, so much more than it ever did before. The faces he'd seen in the glass of the windows, the voices in the fog, the spectres on the lake, they would never let him go, never let him forget. No matter the distance or the time, they would make sure he knew. 5,772 miles it had taken for him to realise one simple truth. 
It wasn't ever going to go away. The train slowed. Alexei rocked in the armchair, unprepared to leave, unwilling to stay. The screams as they burned alive. He'd forgotten them once. He couldn't do it again. Guilt would always be with him. Metal squealed as the halt was made. There in the doorway to his cabin stood the conductor. Mr. Gorky, he said in a gentle, prompting voice. Alexei froze in the chair, clutching onto the samovar. We have arrived. It is time for you to go. Yes, he knew that. Do you know what this is? Alexei asked, his voice juddering and pale. What Mr. Markov wants with it? It is to help you, Mr. Gorky. How? How does it help me? I will tell, but first I would like you to tell me what it is that has troubled you for so long. What troubles me? Yes, I want to hear it all. He'd never before let the words leave his lips. Nobody had ever known but him. Begrudgingly, he began. My babushka and little sister. Olenka was just six years old. Babushka was seventy-six. Between them there was a life lived and one yet to do so. And then there was me. Ha! I was seventeen at the time. I was strong, healthy, a boy who should have had no fear. His brow creased, dark and pendulous like a thundercloud ready to burst. But a deadly coward. Alexei looked at the conductor. I shouldn't have left them alone, and I should have tried to help them he cried, his face contorted by anguish and self-loathing. I could have saved them both, but instead... You left them? Yes! Spittle flew from his mouth, his face wet with tears. I left them to die in the fire, to burn and smoke and flame, to choke and scorch and ask why I wasn't there for them when they needed me the most. Instead of helping them, I killed them, and I ran away. Alexei broke into blubbering, uncontrolled sobs, begged of the controller like he was a priest who could offer absolution. Please, I'm done with running. I, I can't go any further. They'll never leave me. No matter how I try, I can't get away. It's, it's the guilt. Yes, the conductor's eyes sparkled with glee. The guilt, Mr. Gorky. Pusent, radiant guilt. Do you see? The guilt has become you, and you it. You are inseparable, Mr. Gorky, and from that there is no escape. Tell me, then, what, what am I to do? I can't go forward nor back. I'm trapped. The conductor had one last direction to give him. His smirking tone stripped away as he spoke with cool sincerity. Remove the lid of the samovar, Mr. Gorky. Remove the lid and pour your guilt away. Alexei lifted the lid and looked down inside as a desolation so wretched, so ingrained, overwhelmed him. He knew now that to pour away his guilt meant he'd be pouring away himself. The conductor was right. They were one and the same. A tear dropped from his cheek into the samovar. Yes, Mr. Gorky, give us your guilt. He breathed out, 
drawn into a place where torment and penitence would no longer matter. Inside the samovar there was no more running, no more forgetting, only the comfort of darkness. The wings of the firebird glowed gold, no longer tarnished by patina. The conductor placed the lid back on the samovar and picked it up. He stepped off of the train and onto the platform. The salt air of the Pacific swept inland. A man waited below a dim street lamp. The conductor went to him. Mr. Markov, sir? Markov struck a match and lit a cigarette, his face illuminated orange. Mr. Chaban, right on schedule as always, Markov said to the conductor as he shook the match a single time to extinguish the flame. How was our guest? Did he pay his full fare? Indeed he did, sir, though rather reluctantly. The conductor handed the urn to Mr. Markov. But, as they always do, he came around. With a little encouragement, might I add. Excellent, excellent. Markov turned the samovar in his hands, measuring the weight of it, and grinned. This one will keep us going for quite some time, I should think. Will you join me for tea, Mr. Chabam? The conductor had been waiting too long for that offer. Certainly, sir. It would be an honour. One cup, though. That's all I'll allow, Markov was stern. We must keep some for our friends. The conductor bowed his head a little content with whatever morsel he was offered. As you wish, sir. That was A.J. Lewis's The Samovar, as read by Dan Raybarts. Dan Raybarts is an award-winning author and editor living in Aotearoa, New Zealand, four-time recipient of New Zealand's Sir Julius Vogel Award and three-time winner of the Australian Shadows Award. He has narrated fiction for Tales to Terrify, Starship Sofa, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and Pseudopod among others. His horror and dark fantasy short stories have been published worldwide. He is the author of the grim-dark steampunk madcap fantasy series Children of Bane, starting with Brothers of the Knife and continuing in Sons of the Curse, Sisters of Spindrift, and Daughters of Dust, and he co-authored the supernatural tech-noir crime thriller series The Path of Ra, with Bram Stoker Award winner Lee Murray. Find out more at dan.raybarts.com. Thank you, Dan. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. 
Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we chant the ancient incantation for more Tales to Terrify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.